Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 572 of the podcast and it is Friday the 3rd of September 2021 as I record this. In today's show, I'm talking to Becca Syme about discovering your strengths as a writer. And we get pretty personal in this interview. And you might have noticed how much I'm questioning my own career at this point. It is uh, almost 10 years old. In fact, I'll be sharing my 10 years next week and uh, since I went full time. And my discussion with Becca helped a lot with some of the things I've been thinking about and what I discovered with my Clifton Strengths Assessment, which we discuss. So I found Becca's quit books really useful and we have a great conversation. I know you'll find it interesting and I highly recommend Becca's books and her Quitcast YouTube channel as she is very wise and I found our session super helpful. So that is coming up in the interview section. In publishing and book marketing news this week, there's a very interesting article by agent Kristen Nelson on her blog called 14 Reasons Agenting is Harder Now Than 20 Years Ago. Now, to set the context, Kristen is very well known for being an excellent agent and also open to her authors being hybrid. And she's worked with some very big indie authors and uh, those who are hybrid as well. And she has some great articles on her site. It's one of the, I think, in fact, it's the only (laughs) blog I follow Uh, from agents. And uh, so I definitely recommend having a look at her site at nelsonagency.com. But this particular post, although it's about agent, why agenting is harder, it's also got some great insights that relate to authors. So I'll just share a few of them. She says crowded social media means lower agent visibility. And in fact, just, (laughs) just change the word agent for author and you'll get what I'm talking about. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok are crowded with social media savvy agents and editors, which makes it harder for agents to create visibility for their brands or stand out. There we go. Uh, The need for marketing. In today's publishing landscape, agents have to do so much more marketing, publicity management to optimise client success, which limits the number of clients an agent can take on. Going indie. (laughs) Authors might start in the traditional publishing realm and then move indie, which eliminates a source of income for the agent. As most folks know, I'm hugely supportive of authors and indie publishing, which she is, but the loss of talent to the indie sphere does impact an agency's bottom line. And this, to me, implies that more established authors are going indie. Perhaps they're just not talking about it as much as we all do. (laughs) Also, some interesting things about contracts. She said, first of all, how long contracts take. Six months is the new norm to be fully executed. The consolidation of publishing houses, which limits the submission options. The blockbuster mentality. Historically, authors weren't expected to conjure bestsellers straight out the gate, but to build their writing skills and audience over time. Now, if a debut doesn't do well, it's extremely hard to get the author a second chance, which is why we see so many authors using multiple names in their careers. 
And then also about the actual money. She says an agent earns commission at the same time a client is paid. Publishers are now citing corporate mandates that payments must be structured in four or five instalments. And some of those payments aren't coming in until after publication, which makes it no longer an advance. And that's a quote from her site. Uh, But she says that's a topic for another day. This structure impacts an author's financial well-being. It also impacts an agent's ability to earn a living. Imagine negotiating a contract today and knowing that a portion of your commission won't be paid for two years. And so, again, I wanted to emphasise, you know, if you if you think about the impact on the author in that, it's it's essentially very similar to the impact on the agent in terms of payments. So payments must be structured in four or five instalments and some after publication. So interesting times indeed. So there's lots more in the article. I haven't told you all of it. There are 14 points. It's super interesting. Links in the show notes as ever. I think the business model for agents has to change as much as the business model for authors has changed and is going to change even more. And uh, if more agents worked with indie authors to exploit the rights we want, someone else to deal with and outsource, I think they'd find some interesting opportunities. For example, there are very strong groups of genre authors that an agent could take on and sell bundles of niche books for foreign rights. I mean, it's not just you take, you you wouldn't even just have to work with one author. I mean, even think about my nonfiction, you could take a, a books for authors niche and bundle up, you know, some of my books and then pick a whole load of indies whose books are in a similar niche around writing and then, you know, license those. I reckon most of us indie authors are going to be well up for working with an agent. We all do bundles and we all do working together within genres. So I think there's so many different business models that agents could look at. They perhaps just haven't taken advantage of the new ways of doing things yet and yeah I think (laughs) there are some interesting times ahead but hopefully we'll see more of that and in terms of traditional publishers doing different things and going indie I think this is this is absolutely classic literary fiction author Salman Rushdie has announced he will release his next novel on Substack as reported by The Guardian so this is essentially serialization and Substack started as just email newsletters I know quite a few authors who have a paid email newsletter on Substack although you can do paid email on normal in quotation mark services like ConvertKit, for example, you can now do paid email and a lot of the established platforms are getting into paid email newsletters. But Substack is now trying to serialise novels and uh, non-fiction books by big name authors and presumably because they want more readers to pay and get used to the platform. But it is very important to think about how the money works here. The article mentions that Salman Rushdie is part of Substack Pro, where writers are paid an advance for their first year on the platform. And I guess, I assume that what they're hoping is these authors will drive their audience to the platform, the writer will make more money than they expected, or more money than the advance, and then stick a Around because Substack essentially take a monthly cut of the uh, the fee. So, yeah, I think this is classic because it kind of goes into the thing that Kristen Nelson wrote about going indie. Even though Salman Rushdie is not, you know, jumping on KDP, 
he is going on Substack, which to me is is a kind of similar thing. It's an independent choice. It, I, I imagine his agent would have got involved with that. But it's not the same for someone like Salman Rushdie as it is for a another unknown author who decides to release their book on Substack. In the same way, it's not the same if a new author uploads a book on KDP and expect it's to sell. You have to build an audience, whoever you are. But Salman Rushdie is a name brand, uh, probably mainly because of the fatwa that obviously was against him for a long time. There's also a completely annoying thing in this article, which is not really surprising. (laughs) I've been reading The Guardian for a long time and it still annoys me. (laughs) The article says, He also realises that by taking his fiction digital, he's taking a step away from the beloved medium he has dedicated his life to. People have been talking about the death of the novel almost since the birth of the novel, but the actual old-fashioned thing, the hard copy book, is incredibly mutinously alive, and he says, here I am having another go at killing it. And I was like, of course he's not, because you release your novel on Substack, you still own the copyright, so he will no doubt be releasing that book in multiple formats after it's finished. So it will be a Substack serialization. Then there can be a hardback. There can be a paperback. There can be an ebook. There can be an audiobook. And uh, in fact, I just saw the Malcolm Gladwell Bomber Mafia, which started out as an audio first original on um, Pushkin, I think it is, the publisher. And then they've put it into book format and doing all these other things. So the point of the new way of doing stuff is that it's not hardback first, (laughs) then paperback, etc. What Rushdie's doing here is he's doing serialisation first, but that certainly doesn't mean that you can't do all the other formats. And that is what we should do because it's a different audience. Obviously, the person who buys a Salman Rushdie hardback from a bookseller is not the same person who is going to read his novel on Substack. And in fact, they might have trouble making money off that because I'm not sure his audience are the people reading in this serialized form. But who knows? The point is, it's a different audience for different mediums. And it's great that he's having a go. It'd be very interesting to see how this works. But yeah, I thought you uh, might be interested in that. In my personal update, I'm still working on Tomb of Relics and in the final romp towards the end, I know what's happening now, I just need to finish it. So I should be finished this week and then I'll give it a rest for a week and then get into edits. The previous book in the series, Tree of Life, is on special this week, 99 cents, 99p or equivalent currency on all the usual ebook stores and direct from me at payhip.com forward slash the creative pen. If you're interested, I shall read you the blurb. An ancient manuscript that leads to the Garden of Eden, a seed that can restore the world to nature, but only by destroying humanity in its wake. When a fragment of an ancient manuscript is stolen from a Jewish library in Amsterdam, arcane agents Morgan Sierra and Jake Timber discover a conspiracy that stretches back to the days of the Portuguese Empire and a hidden order of monks who have protected Eden for generations. From Lisbon to Macau, the Caribbean and on to Brazil, Morgan and Jake must hunt for the fragments of the manuscript and find their way to the Garden of Eden before those who wish to turn its secret into blood. There you go. If you need some adventure and some virtual travel, check out Tree of Life on your favourite platform. 
And if you need something a bit more sedate, I was also on the Sacred Steps podcast last week talking about transience and permanence, my experience of walking the Pilgrim's Way to Canterbury last year. And I'll hopefully be off on my next pilgrimage next month in October, walking to Lindisfarne, Holy Island on the St Cuthbert's Way. Fingers crossed that happens. (laughs) I really need a long walk, (laughs) for sure. If you want to hear about Canterbury and you enjoy hearing about pilgrimage, check out the Sacred Steps podcast on whichever podcast app you use. So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments this week. Tara Coulter says, thanks so much for this podcast, Joanna and Edwin. I learned so much about writing for the gaming industry. And Nicole Lisa says, after a break in my routine, changing countries and 11 time zones, I'm catching up on podcast episodes, enjoying the Kusama exhibit at the New York Botanical Garden and sent a lovely picture of this gorgeous yellow and black octopus like sculpture, which looks awesome. Thanks to Amanda Peters, who said, thanks so much for this interview. It's so nice to see game design being recognised as a literary medium. Fantastic. Thanks to everyone. You can tweet me at The Creative Pen. You can leave a comment on the YouTube channel or on the blog, thecreativepen.com forward slash blog. You should always find the latest episode at the top there. And of course, the show notes are always at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can find all the episodes there. So today's show is sponsored by Kobo Writing Life and I'll play a word from Steph and Tony in a minute. But on a personal note, I've been publishing on Kobo Writing Life since it started (laughs) and it's one of the most international platforms with readers all over the world and a subscription program for readers that does not require exclusivity, which I like. You can see my KWL sales map at thecreativepen.com forward slash Kobo map, 168 countries now and counting. So thanks to all of you buying my books all over the world through Kobo. If you want to sell more books on Kobo, my recommendations are to do box sets, which do very well, and apply for promotions every month on the promotions tab, which you can get access to by publishing direct to KWL and asking for access. So yes, fun times. This type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time in creating the show is sponsored by my patrons, who also get an extra audio every month, a QA and a when I answer all the questions that you have. Thanks to new and returning patrons in the last few weeks. Thanks to Shannon Brown, Kathy Gettel, Emily and Margaret Etheridge Maggie Wells. I really appreciate your support and to everyone who's been supporting for months and some of you for many years, you are fantastic. <laughs> you fund my brain and I do have some in between episodes, some more futurist stuff coming up. You can support the show for just a couple of dollars or euros or Canadian dollars or whatever per month and you'll get the extra monthly Q&A audio. You can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, here's a word from Kobo Writing Life and then we'll get into the interview. Hi, I'm Stephanie. And I'm Joni. And we're from Kobo Writing Life. Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors, and our team of dedicated book lovers are always working hard to help authors reach new readers around the world. With that in mind, we want to tell you about Kobo's subscription reading service, Kobo Plus. This program has been a great success in the Netherlands and Belgium, which is why we decided to bring it to our home market and launch Kobo Plus in Canada. The great thing about Kobo Plus for authors is that it reaches an entirely new audience who may be trying digital reading for the first time. 
We also ensured that authors retain control of their books. Do you want to try out a book in Kobo Plus in Canada, but not in the Netherlands? You have the option to do that. Simply select the areas you want to be included in the rights and distribution section of your book. My favorite feature for authors is that there's no exclusivity with Kobo Plus. You can sell your books wherever you choose, and we encourage you to make your work available to as many readers as possible. It's a great way to gain and build an audience. If you want to learn more about Kobo Plus or Kobo Writing Life, check out our blog, podcast, and find us on social. You can create your free account at kobo.com slash writinglife. Back to you, Joanna. Becca Syme is an author, coach, and creator of the Better Faster Academy. She's a USA Today bestselling author of Small Town Romance and Cozy Mystery, and also writes the Dear Writer series of nonfiction books. So welcome, Becca. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, I'm looking forward to talking to you. So first up, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing. I've been one of those people who wanted to kind of write my whole life, right? Like a storyteller and et cetera. But I actually got into writing uh, romance specifically because I was a reader, because I loved reading and I loved the stories and the characters. So uh, I, I definitely came to writing from a love of writing and then realized just how much I actually love the process. Like beginning to end. I just love the process of writing books. And so I started full-time in 2012, uh, 2013, and then just never looked back, I guess. So I, I really love it. Did you have like a previous career? I did. Well, actually what I'm doing now in terms of I write fiction and nonfiction, uh, the nonfiction is really aligned with what I used to do, which is a combination of sort of uh, strategic leadership development consulting or leadership in like nonprofits. And so my background is very much in what I'm currently doing with writers, which is success alignment and strengths coaching. We use the Clifton Strengths program, and I've been a certified Clifton Strengths coach for uh, for almost 16 years now. And so that's definitely uh, what I love doing before I was writing. And then I kind of fell into doing it with writers after I became a fiction writer, because there was so much need for people to understand how and why they're successful. It's not something that's sort of innate for a lot of us. And so I found that there was a big need for that and kind of fell into that second career after also having uh, been a fiction writer. So, And it's interesting, I've read a number of your books and in Dear Writer, You Need to Quit, which it's a very provocative title, which I'm sure right. you, you designed on purpose. But I think it's, it's very interesting. And of course, you go through a, a number of different things that writers should think about quitting. But you talk about how you burned out. So can you talk about that experience and, and how you got through that process in order to, to change things again? Yeah, the way that I burned out initially, I was a nonprofit leader. I was an executive director at a nonprofit at a very young age. And I just didn't know, I didn't understand that there was an end to energy. I didn't understand that you couldn't just keep overworking. And I think a lot of us are like that, right? We learn about burnout from having burned out. And so what I realized through that experience Uh, the initial burnout that I went through, which was very devastating, you know, not able to really even get up off the floor out of bed. It was a very, very thorough (laughs) burnout. And what, but what I learned was that there is an end 
to how much energy I can expend. And if I'm not cautious about how I expend energy over time, that I'm, I'm going to end up right back there. Because of course, I burned out again in 2013. And so there is absolutely a learning curve to burnout. But I feel like the key for me was the knowledge that if you can steward, I guess is the best way, steward your energy, then burnout is less inevitable, even for people who are uh, who work hard, who Phoenix like that, who work really, really hard and then burn hot and then need to recover a little bit. You can still not quote unquote burn out uh, where you just can't work if you're cautious about how you steward your energy. Yeah, I, I think I'm one of those people I tend to work super, super, super hard and I sleep a lot. Like I'm a sort of nine, 10 hour a night girl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I'm very lucky to do. And then I can go at quite a high pace when I do go. But just coming back again to you said 2013 then. So that was when you had gone full time. And I feel mm-hmm. like in the indie community, there are some behaviors that can lead to this kind of burnout. So what was it yes. for, for you? It was definitely the thought that I had to keep up with what everyone else was doing. And I think the whole concept for me of watching what other people do and trying to copycat them is one of the things that I think gets us in the most trouble as an indie community. There are There is a very small segment of personality driven people who are personality wired to look at other people and copycat them, but it's like 12% um, of the entire population. So most of us should not be copycatting other people. And I think there's this mentality in a lot of success studying that says, if I copy what people are doing, then I'm going to have their results. So if someone is writing you know, 8,000, 10,000, 12,000, 20,000 words a day or a week, that that is how they are successful. And, and I just don't, I didn't realize that that wasn't the case because of course that's not my pace. And I needed to learn how to own that, the fact that it wasn't my pace, but I came into the industry looking at what are all these successful people doing and how do I copy their actions to get their results? And that so rarely works for people. And we don't ever question like, well, why doesn't that work for me? Is it because I'm lazy or stupid? No, it's because you're different than them and you have a different success pattern. So uh, I had to learn that the hard way. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are and um, are learning that. And actually, in fact, just today on on Twitter, a friend, writer, friend of mine, put up uh, a tweet saying, "Is anyone else just feeling?" I mean, but people use the term burnout, and I think that means a certain thing. But mm-hmm. at this point, I didn't want to mention the virus, but here I go. That in right. the pandemic, sort of eighteen months, twenty months in. We feel this exhaustion in our creativity. Now, last year in 2020, I I did something like six books because I was driven. I was really driven. And this year I feel like I, I'm just not, you know, and I feel like a lot of that is exhaustion. And I don't think it's necessarily burnout, but I feel maybe creatively we haven't been able to fill the creative well or anything like that. Yes. So, and I feel like it's, we need to talk about it's okay to feel like this yep. rather than you just have to muscle through, I guess. Yeah. 
one, it's not weird. Like it's not weird for us to feel this exhausted, not just that it's normal in the pandemic, like in, in a pandemic, in any pandemic, it's normal to reach pandemic fatigue, right? Like that's mm. we, we, that there, that's well-documented. But additionally, like if you think about the concept of what it means to spend energy, we don't often think about the fact that we also need to get energy from somewhere. Like we're constantly, because we do make energy when we sleep, when we eat, uh, when we have fun, when we research or learn, when we do all these different things, but we're not as aware of it as we are of how we spend energy. So let's say you had a thousand pennies of energy over the last 20 months to write and you had been spending all of them, but never creating any more then at some point, or, and I'll talk about this in a second, but you've been spending them, but not creating any, or you reach the end of the, the uh, extra, I guess the leftover that you had, then yeah, it's completely normal to feel like I am out. I'm tapped. I can't. <laughs> mm. And then what we need to do is think that's not weird. It's not bad. It's not abnormal. It's that what used to cost us one penny to do now costs us five. So it used to cost me one penny to open Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. And now I have to cons- I have to spend more energy because I'm either seeing something that makes me frustrated or watching someone else's success and getting, you know, why can't I have that? And I'm fighting more against different things than I used to be. So even just one simple thing can cost me more energy than it used to. Think about how we used to go to the grocery store. It was so easy to go to the grocery store. We didn't even think about it. Now we think about it. It costs us more to do those things. So of course, we're more expended than we were. We All we need to do is just think about, okay, how do I get more creative energy? Do I need to read books? Do I need to watch Netflix? Do I need to talk to other writers? Uh, what is it that's going to fill those pennies in my bank so that I have them to spend? Because it's going to cost more to do those things now. Yeah, that's a good analogy. And for me, my fiction comes from my travels and I'm completely exhausted. Mm. <laughs> I mean, yeah. as in my pennies are exhausted. And the, the yeah. novel, um, as this goes out, it, hopefully I'll be finished. But I was writing a novel. And in fact, yesterday, when I was sitting, trying to figure out why the hell I couldn't write. And then I was like, you know what I am? I'm just tapped out of ideas. So it's going to be a novella. And that's a good way to deal with it. <laughs> oh, I love that. And, well, and also, is there a way to simulate the travel that you used to get? So not necessarily, you know, like just watching a movie, but like, could you experience something new of your high input or high individualization or something like that in the strengths at Clifton strengths, which is the personality assessment we use, you have a higher need for new and different than other people. And so if you have that higher need that it's good to try and find some places like where can I research or watch a documentary or talk to a person who lives in a place I've never been to uh, look at pictures, you know, experience something that I've never experienced before. Because if you're, if your energy for writing comes from that new and different energy, then yeah, you'll absolutely run out of it when it runs out. And then can we look for alternative sources? Mm. 
And then in the book, Dear Writer, You Need to Quit, you have this key recommendation, which is quit accepting the premise. And Mm. you use that a lot in what you talk about. And I, I really love it. So what can that be applied to and how can we use it to improve our experience as an author? Yeah. So accepting the premise is, well, first of all, when I hear something, I assume it's true because I've heard it a lot. And honestly, a lot of us believe things because either they rhyme or they're symmetrical. So think about something like a penny saved is a penny earned. Like how often have we heard that? But it's not actually true. If you save a penny, yes, you have an extra penny, but you didn't earn that penny. You didn't do anything to get it. Right. So that type of questioning the premise, like you should work eight hours a day. Well, do you actually know where the concept of the eight hour workday comes from and why it's applied? It actually doesn't apply to fields at all like creativity. In fact, there's the colloquial sort of joke about uh, where does the eight hour workday come from? And one of the industrial revolution fathers actually said that people should work eight hours a day. They should sleep eight hours a day and they should shop eight hours a day. Yeah. So <laughs> that's where the eight hour workday comes from is an expectation that we're contributing to an economy somehow. So like, for, cause otherwise you would work 20 hours a day, right? Because so the eight hour is meant to balance economy. So if you think about things like questioning the premise of, let's say, for instance, writers write, some writers think and some writers need to think to write. So if I'm forcing myself to write just because somebody said writers write and and it felt very resonant to me or they believed it a lot, they had a lot of certainty about it. And I never think to question like, right, but does that actually work for me? Or uh, you can't edit a blank page is another one. People edit blank pages in their head all the time. It's just, For about 50% of people, we found editing a blank page does not actually help them be more productive. But for about 50% of of writers, it does help you be more productive if you allow yourself to edit before you write. So there's so much of this advice that we hear for writers that we just accept without thinking about it because the person who's telling us is either very certain and we're sensing their emotions of certainty or they sound smart or they're successful. And so we assume if they're successful, we should listen to what they say. And again, it's not to say no one should give advice. That's definitely not what I'm saying. It's to say when it doesn't work for you as an individual, don't assume you're at fault and you're stupid or unmotivated or whatever, assume that that advice is not for you because no advice is for everyone. Yes. And and I almost think that you, by questioning the premise, what you're trying to boil down where people are coming from. So for example, you must have an agent and a traditional publisher is a particular premise for a type of author career, or you must write fast and use KU is a kind of different premise for a different author career. And by questioning all of these things, you can shape your own, I guess. And But I feel like too often, it's very hard for new people in particular to know who to listen to and whose premise to accept. So how how do you suggest people, I guess, (laughs) people are listening to us right now or they've turned off, but how do people find appropriate people to listen to in order to get to that premise, I guess? 
I do think that there is some questioning that needs to happen of why am I listening to this person? So if the only reason I'm listening to them is because they've sold a lot of books, then I want to make sure to listen for my own internal alignment. So if they're talking about, you know, don't edit as you go is is the example I use a lot. If they're saying don't edit as you go, the reasons they might be saying that have to do with how their personality aligns with that particular strategy. And so if, if you're feeling that and hearing, but wait a minute, I need to do that in order to write effectively, then you need to listen to your own intuition. And so much of this, and again, I feel like it's so weird to say this out loud, All of what successful people have learned, they've learned by trial and error. So it's not like there's some secret hidden code that they understand. They literally learned it by succeeding and failing themselves. And so some of it, especially in younger or newer to a particular industry authors, is it's actually really good to succeed and fail sometimes because it's how you learn what works for you as well. But in terms of alignment though, of like, who should you listen to? I do think you can, most people can tell pretty quickly when a particular piece of advice does not work for them. Like I've tried and tried and tried to dictate and it literally just cannot because, and again, for my personality as an external processor, I don't know how to speak out loud in the same voice that I write in. Mm. Like it's not possible for me. So dictation will never work for me. And it's not a matter of me trying harder or me learning something. It's that that's not a voice I can talk out loud in. So then I know that's not a capacity issue for me. Like it's not that I'm not good at something. It's just dictation is not for me. So I feel like I I push trial and error as an intuition builder, But also I do think listening to our own residents is really important. Like when you hear someone who's not resonating with you, but you feel like you have to listen to them for some reason, question that premise, including me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, exactly. Including me too. So (laughs) people are (laughs) listening to us. Uh, So I want to come back on the Clifton strengths thing that you do. And it's so funny because I'd heard of this before. And then my friend and fellow author and podcaster, Sasha Black recommended uh, it. And, you know, she's done your course and she was like, it's life changing. It's life changing. And, And we'd had a few drinks at the time. So I took that with a pinch of salt, but then I came home and I was like, I'm going to do this. And I did it. And it did truly, truly help me in terms of understanding aspects of my personality that I was getting frustrated with. And obviously there are lots of these different personality tools. So tell us a bit about the Clifton Strengths in particular and how you think, why it's useful, I guess, um, to people and, and give us some examples. Yeah. And I, I also, because there are so many personality tools, I do think that they can all be useful on some level in terms of either Uh, placing myself on a continuum somewhere, because that's where a lot of my work and success alignment is about like, okay, so where do you fall on that continuum? How much of that trait do you have? And the reason I like the Clifton Strength so much is that it specifically is about success. So it's not just like, how am I wired or what is my, or what are my preferences? It's no, where can you expect the most success 
based on where millions of other successful people have indicated that their success also comes from. And millions of successful, I mean, like the top 10% of an industry, because that's who Dr. Clifton went after when he was interviewing people to figure this out. So a lot of personality tests that are out there are one person has decided there's four kinds of people. And those can be helpful because they do apply to, you know, by standard deviation, 68% roughly of people will fit into some realm of that, but it's not individual enough. And so what I love about Clifton Strengths is that there are 34 different possibilities you can have strong. So it's your areas of consistent near perfect performance, but then also you have five of them. And so it, there, it's very, very individualized to how your success will happen. So like one of my top strengths is input. And I am the person who I will Google everything. If you have a question, I want to know the answer to it. I'm super curious. I have an interest level in so many different things. And the way that that impacts my writing is I like to put little pieces of information into my writing or little unique things into my writing that are like Easter eggs for people who love high input. And the a number of letters I get from people who are like, oh my gosh, that one shoe designer from 1906, you know, from a book I wrote 12 years ago, because it's so, it lights up input people when they learn new pieces of information, even from their fiction. And so a lot of us who are high input can feel like that's not a beneficial thing, but it's actually a way that you can stand out. And many of us who love to do that don't even realize that we do it. So like, for instance, when you travel, your input is taking in all this information of all the things around you, the smells, the sights, uh, what things look like, how you would describe them, what it feels like to be immersed in that place. And then when you write, you can write a sense of place in such a realistic way because your input is pulling all of those little details and will remember them, right? Like you'll file them into your memory. And so that becomes more immersive and you don't have to write very many words on the page for that to happen. It's not like you have to fill up with description. It's just when you write the detail, it'll be real. It'll be resonant. And that's something not everyone can do. Oh, and I'm uh, in my top five is input as well. And learner is my number one. And and it's mm. exactly what you say. My fiction is very detail heavy about lots of things. It's not an um, info dump. But if I describe a setting of a cathedral, every single detail is exactly right, you know, yes. and yes. and I, I love all that. Like you, I'm my readers appreciate the massive historical details and all of this yep. type of stuff. And I love it. This is why I do this is why I do what I do. (laughs) When even your nonfiction, like Mm. you're a learner input in your nonfiction as well. Like Mm. you gather information from reputable people and you learn from, I just remember reading your, your health book and like writing with a doctor and talking to the doctor about all of that. That's a very input learner way of doing nonfiction which seems very commonsensical, right? And this is Mm. one of the things about strengths that's so fascinating is like, you might say, well, of course you would do that because that's what makes sense to do it that way. (laughs) It's what you do. And 
I would say, right, but most people wouldn't think to do that. And that's what makes your work stand out. And this is the the core, I think, of the Clifton Strengths, especially for writers, is that what you do the most instinctively is often something that that you would toss away, like as a high in election, I think all the time. Well, of course you do, because that's just what you do, right? But did you know 58% of writers have an election? So if you think deeply about something, if you iterate that over and over in your mind, you come to such clarity and certainty um, about that character, plot, concept, setting, detail, you know, strategy, that you have a depth that other people are not able to reach because they don't have that strength. But it seems so commonsensical to those of us who are high in election because of, well, of course I would do that. So part of Clifton Strengths is understanding just how unique and different you are from everyone else and then how to utilize those traits to be that successful, to be more successful than you are, right? To be that standout person. And I think the the other thing I like is that, well, it's funny because I, I mainly, I did it because I was feeling like, why why don't I want a writer's group? Why don't I want someone said, oh, why don't I do a mastermind? Or why don't I do coaching? Or why don't I want to <laughs> be in groups of people? And I also was questioning whether I should be doing these kind of futurist episodes for the podcast, because frankly, they're not as popular as uh, the main show. And I was like, do I, should I do this? And then I did this. Clifton Strengths and Strategic and Futurist were in my top five and pretty much all my bottom things were in relationship building and so I felt I mean really it was it was hilarious and I was like this this has helped me in knowing my strengths which are strategic and futuristic but also my weaknesses which are around relationships now that doesn't mean I'm going to give up on relationships but it just made me feel better about what I was feeling in terms of my career so yeah yeah, I mean and anything else on that like how should we treat those things that are that are at the bottom. <laughs> yeah, we usually say ignore the bottom because it's just not where you're going to be strong. Like it doesn't necessarily mean you can't do those things. Like you're an incredibly warm person relationally, like on a person to person level and that and you're utilizing that effectively in your career. So it's not like you can't relate to people. That's just not where you lead, right? So Mm. we always tell people to ignore the bottom because that's just not where your strong traits are going to be. But also just to talk about the strategic and futuristic, like whether those episodes are popular today or not, and whether they're going to be popular a year from now, like most futuristic people are uh, way ahead of where everyone is. What was so fascinating, we have a, a number one futuristic writer because uh, paranormal women's fiction is really big right now in, in 2021. And she was writing paranormal women's fiction about two years before uh, anyone else was, and it wasn't selling. And she was extremely frustrated by it. And all of a sudden the PWF big boom started And we all pointed at that and we're like, oh my gosh, paranormal women's fiction two years before anyone else did. So as a futuristic, it's really common to be ahead of everybody else. And so knowing that about yourself and knowing, hey, it's okay for me to be like that. I could potentially be on the leading edge of something instead of feeling like, you know, not everybody's around me yet. Um, That might be a good thing. It might be how you stand out in your career. So 
Mm-hmm. But I would bet those episodes will be popular once the middle adopters really start <laughs> yeah. to listen to you, right? <laughs> yeah, once yeah. the world catches up. But yeah, it is kind of frustrating when you feel like, oh, this is this is going to happen and people just ignore you for years. But the same happened with self-publishing and podcasting yes, and exactly. all of that. So yeah, no. so I feel like I've got a bit of history now. But um, coming back to what what you do, tell us a bit more about what your business looks like now and mm-hmm. how you help writers particularly with this kind of Clifton Strength stuff and, and what you do. So all of our Clifton Strength stuff is coaching uh one-on-one because as much as it's interesting to learn about strengths, it really isn't helpful to just learn the information. I mean it can be helpful like with Joanna because now Gallup has so many resources that are very individualized. So if you end up reading your report on your full 34 report, it's now individualized completely to you based on all the where your 34 rank, which is something that they're able to do because they've been now I think 50 years into this research, which is amazing. But specifically what we do is we do a lot lot of coaching, uh, one-on-one coaching. We do have some classes, but they're more in the, uh, like, here are the six parts of your writing life and how do we align you for success in each part of your life based on where you fall in different continuum metrics. And that's our Write Better Faster. But specifically with the strengths, our goal is to customize success for everybody, because I think that's where we see, like, I want to see a hundred percent success. So I want everybody who comes in to be able to figure out like, how am I going to be at my most successful? And that's kind of our, our business model, I guess, is very, very individualized, which similarly to what you were saying about, like, why am I not doing this? Why am I not doing that? I have a crisis of a strategy Every once in a while, when I realize we don't have any evergreen classes, like Mm. we don't have any um, short form paid content, there are a lot of things that we just don't do because it doesn't align with who I am as a person. I want to individualize and customize everything. And so that's very much what my business model looks like is that the closest you'll get to evergreen is the the quit books, the dear writer books. And even those are customized almost chapter by chapter to different people because they're so they're about an individual person. They're almost like case studies. And so that's very much my business model. I'm a number four individualization in the Clifton strength. So I want everything to be for one person. Mm. I'm just looking at my now I'm 17 for individualization. So it's way down. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, it, I, but I do find this so interesting and your books are excellent and I want to just uh, encourage people that they cannot come to your website and say Becca teach me about ads <laughs> yes <laughs> yes that's definitely not something we do although we did just start an intuitive ads program but oh. that's more because I feel like that's a missing personality trait and we're not actually teaching ad strategy we're teaching intuitive personality decision making because it's very different from non-intuitive or from concrete objective decision making so we do have ads discussions, but no, you will definitely not learn best practice strategy from Becca. Like I don't do that. (laughs) 
so uh, talk a bit so see, your business model even though I don't do uh, coaching and things I mean obviously I'm the same as you in that I have non-fiction and I have fiction and I don't really even do well who does speaking anymore but at some yeah. point that might come back in person but I still feel that's a sort of bit like my podcast it's individual to group as opposed to one-on-one like what you're doing so you've talked a bit about the business but in terms of encouraging people who might want to have these multiple streams of income and Mm. I love that you decided not to be a full-time fiction author how can you encourage people who want to build a a more holistic business model I guess it's not just fiction sales yeah I do think that for most of us like I would say from a personality perspective more than 60 percent of people are not going to function well in a very linear business model, just in terms of only doing one thing. Most of us have some form of one of the Clifton strengths, and I'll just name them learner, individualization, input, context, strategic, adaptability, activator, woo, significance. So if you have any of those strengths that are dominant in your, um, especially learner and input, you're not going to be satisfied long-term with only one thing. Like let's say only one series or only one genre even, or potentially only one business. So many of us have that. I need that new and different, or I need something challenging where I need, or I get bored quickly. And we feel like that's a weakness and it's not, it's actually a strength. And so I do think that the multiple streams of income concept is going to work for most people in terms of it'll keep you engaged in something so that you can come back to. So like on a daily basis, I don't do only one business. I'm every single day do fiction, nonfiction. I still am working at a nonprofit. So I do some form every single day of those because I need the difference in order to stay engaged in all of the different projects. And there's this idea that if you don't narrow down for every single person, that somehow you're not going to be long-term successful, but actually that's not true for everybody And to a point where you may want to narrow down on a day-by-day basis, but many of us will actually be more engaged long-term if we don't silo quite as much uh, in terms of like, completely not doing anything else. There are many of us who are just made for that. And so I found for myself, especially the multiple streams of income was less of a business strategy in terms of it was was not a money-making strategy. It was a sanity strategy. (laughs) Like (laughs) I wanted to do this, all of this as long as I could. And I knew that I would burn out on it um, if I only did one thing. And, and I really did the fiction I definitely burned out on um, because it was just too much in one direction. And once I allowed myself to widen, I actually got a lot more focused in all of those different areas because of my particular personality. So I would encourage, again, roughly 60% of people will be dominant in some strength that requires them to have multiple focuses. Mm, I hope that's making lots of people feel better. <laughs> And I, I think hope that, so. yeah, that book, The One Thing by Gary Keller, that caused so many people so many issues. 
<laughs> yeah. There are so many books like that. Be obsessed or be average. Uh, you know, there's a ton of these books that are all about like, you have to do only one thing. And I would say, oh, right. Some people do definitely like there are people in the world and it's not the, it's not 60, 40. It's more like 60% absolutely need to have multiple things. And about another 20% would be okay with one thing, but probably not forever. And then there's about 20% of people who are just like, you need to do only one thing uh, and that will be your most successful. And some of those people can do it forever mm-hmm. because that's just how their personality is wired. But what we don't take into account so often is the lens through which people see things when they're giving advice. So this whole, like, you should write every day or you should only do one thing, like all of those are lenses through which those experts see the world and it helps them to function better, but it doesn't necessarily help everyone to function better to do that thing. And so the only do one thing is a perfect example uh, just by personality alone, that's that's not true for everyone. No, super helpful. And then uh, <laughs> I just wanted to ask you one thing about marketing, because given that we have a similar business model and we uh, attract people to our businesses, but we're not necessarily doing paid ads for it. And in fact, you have a chapter on quit thinking Facebook is your friend. <laughs> which is great. And even question the premise that social media is even necessary anymore. Mm -hmm. So what have you found works for you in terms of attraction marketing for your business? Content is, is definitely king in our business, just in terms of like, whenever we find that something is really helpful, we share it. And I, I do both either in nonfiction form, like written form or in verbal form podcasts or YouTube videos because I do find that when you can provide the right kind of content for people, um, that's what they need and it's what they want. And so I feel like if the content is not helpful, like every single time I do any kind of public thing anywhere, I always say, go watch my YouTube channel. If you don't like it, you are not like, you're not obligated to do anything else. Like don't buy a book or buy a class or whatever first watch the YouTube channel because you will be able to tell if we are a place for you or not by listening to me talk as opposed to like hooking people in with an ad or something. Not that that's bad. It's just, it really doesn't work for me because for me, I would rather see the right people at the right time. And that always has to be about is my content right for you or not? And I'm very much a person who I would prefer word of mouth marketing to anything else. So I only want people to come to us if we have helped them or if they think that we will help them because of something they've read or seen or heard. Because otherwise having people just come to me, if I'm not aligned with them, it's like, well, I'm not going to be able to help you if this doesn't resonate. So content Mm. is definitely our primary strategy. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And as someone who doesn't watch YouTube videos, I would also encourage people to read your books because, uh, (laughs) you know, I I, um, got Dear Writer, You Need to Quit. And the funny thing is, I've seen that book in probably even in my also boards for years. And I hadn't read it until recently because, of course, in my head, I was like, I don't need to quit anything. But I had, yeah, I had got it wrong. And clearly by reading your books and then several of the others, I'm like, yeah, that's quite a few things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, 
and the pushback that I got when I first released it, of course, was I don't actually want any writers to quit writing Mm. unless that's really what they need to do for their sanity. But in general, I think the reason that I titled the books the way that I do, like I was just having a conversation with somebody this morning where they were asking me like, well, why don't you have more, more strategic brandable titles? Like, why don't you say, um, here's how to be successful as an author and I'm mm. like, well, cause that's, that's way too open loop for me. And it promises something that I don't know that I can deliver on. I would rather have totally like one of my coaches says, here's what you do, Becca, you take this piece of gold, you put it in a box, you sink it to the bottom of the ocean, you cover it in cement, and then you expect people to be able to find it by the way that I title stuff. And I'm like, well, y- Yeah. That's okay. Because if somebody tells you, Hey, there's this really cool piece of gold down there, you'll go look for it. And then I don't get anybody who doesn't belong in, in the content. And so I'm not just casting a wide net, but that's definitely a strategy on my personalities part. That is, I want to make sure that it's significant, that it makes a significant impact when people read it. So I definitely titled the book the way that I did so that you would only find it when it was the right time for you to find it. (laughs) Well, I hope today we've brought up some gold from the depths and that people will (laughs) go check out your stuff. So where can people find you and everything you do online? The easiest place is to go to YouTube and to search for the QuitCast, Q-U-I-T-C-A-S-T. And of course, uh, if you're not a video person, which it's totally okay, not everybody is, definitely check out the Quit Books for Writers on Amazon or Kobo or Barnes & Noble or Apple, wherever you like to buy books, because I am an aggressively wide author. And so, yeah, please check out the content. And thanks so much for having me. This was a blast. it's been so good to talk to you thank you so much becca that was great so i hope you found the interview with becca interesting today and if you take the clifton strengths assessment and you're interested in mine my top five strengths are learner intellection strategic input and futuristic and knowing this helped me a lot and i really appreciated talking to becca about it all it's helped me understand why i need what i need and that it's okay to be this way so i don't need to force myself into other people's expectations or ways of doing things or other people's boxes and so i hope our discussion helped you too So next week, I'm talking about travel writing with Jeremy Bassetti, who you might know from the Travel Writing World podcast. And we geek out on the different types of travel writing, from memoir to big ideas to travel logs and guidebooks, which is a genre I'm slowly moving into. So uh, yeah, that's coming up. So happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.